decades spending mass focused on alleviating poverty. British public's trust in charities is declining. Funding pressures are increasing. Technologies like blockchain are revolutionising our work. The SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind. Power is shifting to the global south. The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development. Hello and welcome to the Bondcast. The third sector prides itself on its commitment to supporting the most marginalised and those who are vulnerable. But despite the sector's crucial work in tackling inequalities at home and overseas, the UK NGO workforce still faces challenges in diversity, inclusion and unequal pay. At Bond, we've seen the amazing work our members do to tackle exclusion in terms of gender, race and sexuality around the world. And yet, when we look at our own sector's workforce, there's a lot more we need to do to nurture diversity and achieve real change in UK-based organisations. We brought together three experts from across the sector to discuss this crucial issue. First, we have Francis Longley, Chief Executive at AMREF Health Africa UK. Hello. Next, we have Paula Mardi, Chief Supporter Officer and Inclusion and Diversity Lead at British Red Cross. Hello. And lastly, Ilaria Michelis, who is researching intersectionality in the humanitarian response to gender-based violence and the experiences of humanitarian staff. Hello, everyone. So, let's set the scene. What do you think the biggest challenges are facing the international development sector in terms of inclusivity and equality? And why do you think there hasn't been more progress? So that's a a very big question, really. Um, And I think that there's probably a range of reasons or a range of challenges that have, have kind of delayed or hindered progress, really. I think the first is, I think it's our modality or our ways of thinking really about this as an issue in, in as much as that we've tended to chunk diversity and inclusion or DNI as I call it into seams so we've tended to pigeonhole conversations into um, people's sexuality gender age disability um, and we know that in this context and every context that people are, are a whole basically um, and that these issues and others intersect together so the challenge is, I would say, how conceptually and practically how we get this notion of intersectionality correct. And I think this is, you know, this is an absolutely critical step forward because at the moment what we're tending to do is to pit these um, these respective themes against each other in a way, uh, almost as a, a battle for things like funding. I think apart from that, another uh, challenge and another reason why we've probably not made as much progress as we would wish is, of course, funding. Um, The prioritisation of resourcing to take forward diversity um, and inclusion. And that includes all levels, including the types of conversations that I'm having um, with donors going forward. And I think a third is that trust uh, definitely is an issue now. And I say that because... For decades, the you know the INGOs and development actors, uh, we've been talking to local partners and to communities about the importance uh, of inclusion, the need for it, its benefits, um, its protective dimension. But I think that this is a much less powerful uh, and a much less credible message when it turns out that actually um, abuse uh, has come from our end, uh, as it were. I think it's undermined our ability to talk with authenticity uh, and meaning in this space. Yeah, just to um, respond with what um, Paul was um, sort of 
alluding to earlier in terms of um, intersectionality and how we look at all of these issues of diversity taken together. I, I think I agree with Paul that there has been a tendency to take one issue at a time. And I think a lot of that has come from um, certain issues becoming popular or the, you know, the talk of the moment because of, you know, something being covered in the media or um, a particular donor having an interest in LGBT issues, for instance. And that has really made us reactive as a sector um, rather than proactive and has also meant that instead of looking at how all of these issues really um, end up being part of a of a broader problem um, of um, issues of power imbalances and power abuses within the sector even, um, we've, we've just taken it one at a time and tried to tackle them as technical issues that we can sort of address with a quick fix by hiring a few more people and putting them on our brochures. And uh, we haven't really looked at what are the um, fundamental structures within the organizations that in the end really do tend to promote the same kind of people through the ranks. And I think one of the major barriers to to diversity and inclusion so far has simply been that the sector has not been very diverse, has been a sector that's been really dominated by a certain kind of people uh, with a certain kind of bodies, certain kind of educations and socioeconomic backgrounds. And that has really limited um, even the visibility of these issues within the organization. And we've really failed to understand how that lack of diversity impacts the work that we do very much. I often hear, you know, our work is out there and we need to focus on having great programs on the ground, uh, but we don't really think about how not having a diversity of staff uh, can really limit the work that we do. So, for example, in some of the research I've been doing, I've been I've been interviewing um, humanitarian staff and they were saying how people um, will not talk about the needs of affected population with diverse sexual orientation or gender identities um, in a meeting, even though they've seen, for example, trans people in a refugee camp, but they won't bring it up because they're worried that other people in the meeting might think that they are gay or that they are, they have a diverse sexual orientation or gender identity and therefore they will just not tackle that problem because they're too scared about what other colleagues might think of them. I think that's really interesting because uh, one of the things that I've noticed is the extent to which the way that in the UK the NGO sector historically has depicted the people that they are raising money for or uh, you know delivering programs to support is has often typically been quite distancing and has been very much about saying these are a different kind of people in a different kind of place who need help from you because you're somehow stronger and better and more capable and able to offer that help. Um, and although some of that is changing, it does create a real scenario of us and them. And as you're saying quite rightly, the us tends to be people who look and you know, look a particular way and are from a particular background and are all quite similar to each other and are different, perhaps, certainly on a superficial, visible level, uh, to the people that the the, the programmes are, are existing to benefit. And when you then try to say, actually, we need to be more diverse in our UK workforce, part of what you're saying is we need to recruit people who fit into the category that we've previously been making very other and so how would those people start to feel welcome or comfortable 
in a context where all the discussion about things which with which they might identify themselves are of vulnerability and need and otherness. And I think that discourse is really off-putting for many people who might identify with some of those characteristics that we're talking about. Because why would you go somewhere where you're going to be somehow, on whatever level, considered not of the same value? Can I just come in on that? Because there's so much in terms of what you said. And, um, you know, so from my perspective, happy to, you know, make the admission that... um, throughout my career, one of the kind of constant kind of themes or feelings is feeling othered, as it were, or feeling that you didn't quite belong. So what you said there kind of really resonates. But there was also another dimension that was kind of trying to bridge where Ilaria was as well, which is that I'm really, really conscious that um, working within the British Red Cross, my organisation, that um, you know, but I think it's a challenge for you know all NGOs, is that we have typically recruited a particular type of person to work overseas basically with all the challenges that you know you've just identified where i feel real 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 pride is being part of and this is not a plug at all far from it in fact it um, but i feel really proud to be part of a movement where one of its kind of um not so much edicts but one of our principles of working is with with national societies or partner national societies who therefore are able to genuinely with authenticity deliver a message around um inclusion because they're of that community they're working in that they're, they're of that country or that you know that community and i think that is definitely something that uh, the british red cross is is immensely um and i think appropriately proud of yeah, it's really interesting because I, I, I guess the same thing is is certainly true for AMREF Health Africa. Yeah. You know, we're we're an African organisation. Yeah. We're headquartered in Kenya, but it it does create a, a difference. I think you're right. If if I've certainly worked for other organisations in the past where most of the senior people in country yeah. are not from that country yeah. and are flown in at great expense yeah. and yeah. with a vast amount of cultural well lack of cultural awareness, shall we say? Yeah. And it's it's a very different dynamic, isn't it? So I think I think yeah. I would just. Add to that, um, absolutely not to undermine uh, the great work that you've just been talking about, which, and absolutely, that's sort of a first very much needed step to shift that imbalance between HQs in the US or in the UK and um, field offices somewhere else. And I think both of your organizations are a great example of doing that. Um, but another thing that did come out um, in the interviews I've been doing recently, um, including talking to um, some of the national staff, mm-hmm. um, is very much the the lack of diversity we need in those teams as well. And so the fact that within national teams as well, we tend to hire people of a certain socioeconomic background who have gone to university. Um, Very often they belong to a specific religion or ethnic group and with really... terrible impacts in terms of the people that then are included, um, have access to the services that they provide. So you've you've all kind of touched on this already, but the UK has really progressive policies around workforce inclusion. But as we've said, many NGO workers spend time in countries where people are not afforded the same rights or social recognition. So what do you think the distinct challenges are for people working in these contexts? And how do you think NGO workers should navigate these complex situations? 
just following on what we were just saying, I think the first um, thing that we need to recognize here is that issues of diversity and therefore of potentially marginalization or lack of safety uh, within uh, the workplace are not issues that only affect expat staff who move from a country where they had more rights to to um, a country where maybe, um, you know, if we think about again, sexual orientation or gender identity, um, maybe countries where homosexuality is illegal. Um, so we're not just talking about expert staff, basically, but we're talking about national staffs that um, are often in much, much um, greater danger and don't have the luxury of leaving if they find themselves in an uncomfortable situation, um, where often they definitely don't have the luxury of quitting a job because they don't like their colleagues or they don't feel welcome. Uh, and so I think we need to premise that. And we also need to premise um, that um, issues like homophobia or transphobia at work are also not just issues that appear in other countries or that only affect, again, national staff. There are plenty of international UK, US-based staff who are homophobic and transphobic and don't really make it a secret uh, and make work uh, places very um, unpleasant. Though very often they do um, hide their own homophobia or transphobia behind notions of, oh, it's culturally inappropriate for you to, you know, for someone to be out uh, while working in Kenya, for example. Therefore, you know, we're just not going to create a, a, a welcoming environment for them. And they hide behind the cultural appropriateness of something to sort of hide their own prejudice. Um, having said that, I think if I can maybe bring some of my own experience um, to the table, I um, my first field posting was in Uganda, and it was just after um, the anti-homosexuality bill uh, was proposed to introduce the death penalty against uh, LGBTQIS people. And as a queer woman, I did not feel particularly welcome at that time uh, because the political conversation meant that um, this was a very heated debate um, everywhere in Uganda. It was very present and it, that meant I was very present within the office as well. And as I was having lunch break, I was listening or even, you know, sitting with colleagues who were debating how every gay and lesbian should be killed. Um, and that um, was a very difficult thing to go through. Um, but the, the emotional impact obviously was huge. But actually, what was most important, um, most difficult was the fear for my safety, um, the safety of my partner, but probably most importantly, the safety of my um, LGBTQI Ugandan friends, who again, had very little um, recourse in, in a very, very hostile environment. And I think security um, is a very um, still important part of uh, what we need to talk about when we talk about inclusion of staff. Our security teams often are not well equipped to deal with specific um, risks that people with diverse identities might face. Um, I've been to a security training where the trainer, who's a, the, the lead security advisor for the organization I was working with, did not know what LGBT meant. And when I asked you know, what would you do if someone was to come to you and say, I've I'm facing a security issue because of my sexuality. He literally went incoherent and ended up with something like, but we would not do that. 
Um, that would not happen. And so I think, um, yeah, we need to remember that diversity inclusion is not just about getting along together, but it is very often about actual violence and, and the security of our teams. Yeah, I think, I mean, thank you for sharing that because I, I think that that is obviously, it's it's a very real risk. And I, I don't think that there are straightforward answers. I think that there are, you know, you we, we can take an idealistic view and say we should select the most qualified person to send to that posting and then we should try and create an environment where they will definitely be safe. But there, there are limits to the safety that we can ensure for people. And you then do you end up getting into quite complicated discussions. And I, I you know, I, I would put my hand up and say I have not yet found a good solution to that challenge. And what you don't want is to be limiting the opportunities of people. I think that's really, really important. And I don't think anyone should be hiding behind saying, oh, we just can't make that safe for you because that's too easy of an answer. I mean, it's equivalent to... Um, you know, saying to a disabled person, well, it's just too hard for me to make adjustments for you or whatever, you know, those things. It's not an acceptable answer. But I do think that there is quite a lot of complexity as to how you do it. I mean, you, you found yourself in that situation feeling really unsafe. And what was anything done that made you feel safer? Or could there have been something that would have been helpful? It was definitely not done. Uh, but I do think there are things that could be done. I think um, team, I think organizations can definitely feel their staff supported a lot more. I think there are some very basic things that can be done, such as sharing information about what it means to be LGBT in a country. I mean, I totally agree with you that I would never want someone to say, oh, we can't post you there or we can't give you this job because... Um, you are queer, um, I would like to make that choice myself. Um, but I would like to make that choice based on a full, inform full information about what the risks are and what is the level of protection that my organization can provide. So I would expect some level of protection. So I think providing information is the first, both about what is the situation in this particular context, but also about what are the procedures and processes that an organization has in place to keep someone safe. Um, definitely uh, making sure that the security advisors know what LGBTQ means would help. Um, and what are some of those risks? And, and how do you navigate those difficult situations? And, and, and making all staff know, because I shouldn't have to say I am a lesbian to obtain this information or have a conversation with a security advisor where he lets me know that, you know, he understands the, the specific risk I, m I might be facing. Um, but everyone should know and should hear that this is something that the organization has thought about and it's something that the organization has considered and has put measures in place. And sometimes they're going to be policies and procedures, and sometimes they are going to be things that are, you know, a little bit more informal because it is illegal in many countries, but um, that doesn't mean the organization can just step back, as you were saying. I mean, I would just endorse Francis's kind of acknowledgement, I guess, of, of that admission or that, you know, that situation that you've described really kind of, it's very powerful and, and just highlights the uh, well, how can I frame it? But just the immediate impact and the the in a very visceral way, um, the challenges of the situation. Um, from a BRC perspective, um, our approach is, as I've described earlier, is is to ensure that um, 
the work that we're doing in country is done mainly through um, partner societies in country. So from from our perspective, that that is the way that we are helping or ensuring that 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 navigation piece is 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 done uh, within a meaningful cultural context, basically. So we're not being seen to be oblivious to the the cultural kind of context on on the ground. I think that one of the other things that we do as well to ensure, though, that um, we are delivering or working in a way that is mindful of um, everything that we've just been talking about is that we've got a due diligence process or procedure or framework uh, that ensures that we have set out our expectations about what it's like working with our partner national societies so that they are working in a way um, uh, which is mindful uh, of some of the protection issues that we've described um, and ensuring that uh, protection, safeguarding, uh, including from sexual exploitation and abuse, are highlighted and and, and front of mind. And then more broadly and as a final piece, uh, the International Directorate, our our new strategy is committed to what we describe. One of our key uh, pillars is community engagement and accountability. Um, And that's a really, really important entry point for us into the whole uh, diversity and inclusion um, dialogue or framing. So for us, it's a a combination of ways of working um, as set out in our emerging or in our new uh, international strategy. We've been talking a lot about policies and procedures but culture and leadership are also crucial to inclusion. So what do you think the role of leadership is in driving positive cultural change in our organizations if we want to nurture diversity and equality? Anyone who knows me well will know that I speak endlessly about culture. I suspect my staff team just kind of roll their eyes now every time I mention the word culture because we talk about it every day. We've been talking a lot recently about diversity and inclusion, and I think inclusion is the part of that which often gets lost in the conversation. And it's the part where culture, I think, plays the largest part. Because even if you successfully recruit a very diverse working team, uh, unless you tackle the inclusion part, they may very well not stay. If they stay, they may very well not perform to the, the best of their opportunity. They may not get the opportunities they should be given. They may well feel that they are there on a second-class basis or, or on a basis where they're not allowed to be fully themselves. And the solution, if you like, to that, it really is to tackle culture. And I think as leaders, the vital thing is to be opening up that conversation. In my experience, the healthiest cultures are the ones where you can have open conversations. Uh, We talk in my organization about having brave and honest conversations. And uh, we've certainly been trying to have more discussions recently about people acknowledging where they, for example, don't understand something to do with another person's identification or their experience or, you know, for example, perhaps about their faith um, or about sexual identity or those sorts of things. Not being afraid to find a space where you can have that conversation, not in the sense of saying somebody must speak up for whatever aspect of themselves they might identify with and be the, you know, the sole voice on that topic, but actually just being able to say to each other, um, Do you know, actually, that's something I don't know very much about. You know, would you be comfortable telling me a bit more about that? Or, you know, I haven't come across this before. Or what could I do that would be more comfortable for you? Is there something I do that makes you uncomfortable? Is there something I could do differently? Some of those kinds of conversations. But also, you know, not wanting to treat people's different characteristics as as a problem. Wanting to do that in a much more embracing way. Wanting to have positive conversations. Wanting people to feel able that they can be completely themselves themselves 
at work, they can express themselves freely in whatever way they need to do that and know that they are really welcome to do that. And actually all of the things which lead you to that position are the things which create a healthy workplace culture altogether. Uh, you know, we've been having lots of these discussions around safeguarding recently, um, and that's an area I've done quite a lot of work on in the last year or so around leadership and culture for safer organisations. But those conversations are the same conversations because they're the ones where we can say if we feel uncomfortable, we can say if we don't understand something, we can say if we would like something to be different, um, and we can be respectful of other people's views and respectful of other people's uh, different emotions and different experiences of, of the context that we create in the workplace. I, I think Francis puts it really, really well. I think that from my perspective, the role of leadership in this space is creating the safe space or the environment in which difficult conversations or challenging conversations and honest conversations can take place. I'm the uh, Inclusion and Diversity Lead uh, at the British Red Cross. We've got a really, really extensive uh, program of work and, and, you know, that I, again, take kind of great pride in. But actually, one of the things that, in a way, will almost be more intangible will be if we're able to, as a result of all of this, you know, these conversations and this work and the quality impact assessments and what have you, if we change the nature of the conversations that we're, that we're having. And that's ultimately, I think, my brief. I mean, a couple of examples. Um, as I said, we've got an extensive program and it's, it's, it's embedded and what have you. Um, but one of the most uh, animated and lively conversations that we had about d um, in our organisation was when um, one of my colleagues uh, put a, uh, posted a blog or highlighted that actually, um, because of his faith, he found it impossible or it was it was difficult for him to go to a, a pub, to go to the pub after work for drinks, when actually a huge amount of socialising and some business decisions were taken as well. So, you know, he wasn't saying don't go to the pub, far from it, but he was just asking us to think about what the implications um, of that might be, basically, and how we respond to that. The uh, another example which I'm kind of living at the moment, um, and we're trying to find a way through, uh, because again, it's about where leadership in this space is about being prepared to make not difficult, but actually kind of living your values, as it were. So, so we are uh, as an organisation or as an office, we're we're moving from one office to another, um, and it's created an interesting conversation about the provision of a prayer room and actually how necessary that was and for a number of our colleagues it's absolutely critical that they have a prayer you know they have a prayer room or a meditative space or a space for you know reflection um but actually because culturally we hadn't quite got to a space where we'd been thinking about that in advance it then became a situation in which we've had to kind of retrofit or come up with solutions so you know for me leadership is definitely as i say around creating a culture where we're thinking about these things um it becomes embedded in our dna and in our thinking and 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 that's that's the challenge of leadership i also think that you know again from my perspective leadership is about role modeling behavior as well basically so you know not just talking the talk but you know actually generally walking it as well so that for me um is um uh, definitely a um uh, i have a recognition that that's an important part of, of of leadership in this in this regard yeah i would completely agree with that the role modeling is really important and you know as as a chief executive it's something that i strive to do i know i don't always get that right. I, I certainly get things wrong on a regular basis, but I uh, am very publicly trying. And I do think that the the question of values, which you, you touched on really briefly, I think is really important. I think for an organisation, you know, some organisations have a set of values that's just a thing that you write on a plaque on a wall and 
whatever. Um, I think where you have really thought through your values, worked on them together as a team, come up with them together, made sure that they're really crafted to be realistic and relevant for you as an organisation, um, not just something, as I say, that kind of goes on the annual report and is up on the wall, actually something you can live by and you talk about and you discuss and you say, what does that really mean? Are we living those values? I think that then gives you tools to have those um, brave and honest conversations. And I think that's really important in this context, because if you want to recruit a really diverse range of people, you want to hang on to them, you want them to be the best that they possibly can be within the context of your organisation, you better have some pretty good values and you better hold on to them and you better live them really wholeheartedly. Again, one of the things that you said early on that really resonated is that, you know, that equal and ongoing emphasis on both um, diversity and inclusion and the inclusion piece talking to, you know, to the cultural kind of uh, context that we're operating in. Um, I'm familiar with many organisations who have got a lot more imaginative about their recruitment processes and practices. So they are attracting a more diverse, you know, um, pool of prospective employees and they they turn into employees but then because the cultural piece hasn't been done actually in terms of retention you've created a series of problems because you haven't got that welcoming environment or that you know that uh, uh, environment that acknowledges you know and enables people to bring their best self Um, and so again part of our organizational conversation is how we ensure that we're having a really kind of mature and sophisticated debate about diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I would like to just go back to um, sort of the role of leadership and what both uh, Paul and Francis have mentioned already about safe spaces, I think is really critical um, because I think that listening really is the first step um, that comes with culture as well, but comes with creating these spaces where people who are um, feeling um, excluded, like they don't belong in the organization or um, they feel unsafe, can come forward and share their experiences. And I think then the role of leadership is not just to create the spaces, but listen to what people have said. Let them take the lead in how they want to shape um, the response of an organization, an inclusion program, whatever it is. And then the leaders need to put the resources behind it. They need to make sure that there is money that that, to, that goes towards it. Um, to to echo what Paul was saying to start as well, because I think there's a lot of talk, um, but staff now can tell when something is just a lot of talk and a CEO trying to look good by saying how committed they are to diversity. But when the resources are not coming through to implement what are very concrete measures that do need to be taken, um, do need to be put in place, um, then the staff will be you know, very easily disengage and will very easily reveal that for what it is. So recognizing that cultural change is a long game, what do you think we can do to drive equality, diversity and inclusivity within our workforces at all levels of our organizations now? I want to come in on that only because I, it's the opportunity for me to for me to endorse everything that, you know, that Ilhari has said, really. So I think that Uh, there is something around recognizing that you've got to create an environment in which people feel confident and capable and able to, you know, to to bring, as I say, their best selves to work, to truly be themselves, Um, but being prepared to be able to respond to what emerges from that conversation and that dialogue. I think that that is what will really ultimately end up, you know, moving the needle. We've got... Uh, as an organization, any number of 
medium and long-term targets. For instance, you know, we're tracking our uh, ethnicity pay gap, the, you know, the proportion of staff that we're recruiting with a disability. Um, we are increasingly, um, and I think in a really exciting way, beginning to now think about socioeconomic factors in terms of recruitment as well and, and career progression. So, you know, all of those things um, uh, are beginning to uh, become embedded in the organisation and will bear I believe, positive results going forward. But I think that we're, we're having the most dynamic and active conversations in which we'll actually genuinely move the needle is um, our affinity networks um, because they are relatively new in their presence and their establishment. But actually, in terms of what's emerging from them, the conversations that they're having with the rest of the leadership or other parts of the organisation, it's been incredible. Um, and uh, so for, for me personally, um, being part of that dialogue and listening to the you know the views that have come forward and the suggestions and the challenge and the corrections that have come from our affinity networks um, creating the space and the opportunity to act on what emerges from the uh, that safe space that we've created I think that's what will really move the needle going forward yeah I couldn't agree more I think actually that is often a challenge the lack of follow-through when when an issue is brought forward I think I mean, not so recently anymore, but when um, about a year ago, the whole conversation was going on around um, sexual um, harassment and sexual abuse of um, aid workers. The organization I was working with was very quick at um, engaging with staff about it, which was very positive and created lots of these safe spaces and this conversation and tried their best to have their these difficult conversations that you were both talking about. But then... The gap between those conversations happening and anything else being done was so long that people just lost trust and just did not see how their act of bravery of coming on these like all organizational calls with hundreds of people to talk about their own experience of being sexually abused in the organization really didn't result in a concrete and meaningful change of the reporting procedures, for instance. And, and that gap really is what betrays the trust of staff and, and really has a huge impact. Um, and while I'm talking about that, I think, you know, one of the things that I do think is really important, we've been talking about culture, um, but alongside culture, the policies and the functioning systems are essential because, as you said, culture is a long game and we can't wait for everyone to be on board um, to put in place um, systems that um, actually make people safer um, or, or make them able to bring complaints forward and, and, and flag if they're being mistreated by their managers, for instance. Um, so knowing, for example, that my organization does have a I don't know, like an LGBTQI focal point somewhere that I can call upon and that will treat my issues with confidentiality, with respect, with understanding, would make it a lot easier um, for me to be in a country where everyone else is homophobic and, you know, it's it's a pretty grim situation. But knowing that the organization has my back and I trust those policies and procedures, I think is really essential. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. You, you can't just be the talk. It has to be the doing as well. And if you don't have the systems and the processes and the people who are going to actually provide concrete support, I think that's really important. I also um, very much appreciate what you're saying in terms of action needing to be taken. You're right. There, there are often times where we have conversations, but if people then suggest things or bring things out that need to be uh, need to be addressed and then nothing is done, that is 
it is a breach of trust. I would agree with that. And I, I think as uh, as organisations and leaders, sometimes we feel as though we need to tackle everything at once. If we haven't got a complete solution, which is going to go all the way through from beginning to end and fix the whole thing comprehensively, then you know, heavy sigh, how are we going to manage to do this? And I think one of the things that I have learned in the last 18 months, I guess, particularly, is the value there is in actually publicly and openly taking first steps um, and being honest about the fact that it might take a while to fix everything. Um, we've certainly had discussions with some of our staff team at, at AMREF Health Africa about, um, you know, where things have come up and they've said, look, you know, we're worried about this thing or, you know, we're not happy about that thing. And together we've come up with some small things which have started us on a process to try and do the bigger things. And I think that has helped to build some faith, but also to build a bit of momentum because, uh, you know, small steps to, can take you to the bigger steps. But you've got to make the commitment. I think you've got to make a plan. Um, it's easy just to take the small steps and not do anything else, uh, which is not good either. So I, I think it's having an understanding that you, you need to do something quite quickly to, to try and keep people's trust on board with you. But then you really need to be working with them to come up with a plan about how you're going to address it. And in many organisations, you know, the, the resources are very limited, but often the solutions are not expensive. They're not always about money. They're often about um, identifying skills within the people you already have or about changing how you do the things that you're already doing. Um, and I, I think there's a great deal of change and improvement that can come about through that kind of leadership as well. Thank you all for a really thought-provoking discussion. Clearly, we all have a lot to do if we want to transform our workforces into truly equal and inclusive spaces. Thank you to all our speakers. Want to hear more about Bond's work in diversity, inclusion and leadership? Sign up to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate or review us on your chosen podcast platform. <laughs>